right, Tyler. All right, Johnny. You like you too, don't you? I do. Then you might like Urban Hymns by The Verve. As the strains of bittersweet symphony die away, it's time for another episode of Tummel or Then You Might Like, a podcast by the lads from Review 2. Myself, Tyler, and here's Johnny. Say hello, Johnny. Hello. So, The Verve, our hometown band. We're going all the way back to Wigan after a, a, a lovely trip to Burnage last time round. Yeah, it's all got very northwesterly, and I hope the listeners have enjoyed that. The Verve, um, who I don't think you know, Tyler, went to my college, Winstonley College. I'll just get that really? out of the way. I just uh, yeah yeah get that out of the way. Me and the million other people. I don't think you ever told me this story before. Well, there we go. And uh, the Verve made a big impact on another young man. Um, well, not young, Bono, who was sixty when he wrote a letter to the Verve. Um, should we get the connections out of the way straight away, Tyler, before we get into the track by track? Okay, doke. All right. So he wrote, "Dear Nick, Simon, J. Peter, and Simon T. Richard." Somehow, I feel that we are connected. When you dedicated this song, and that song is the one you just heard, Bittersweet Symphony, in snippet form, so we don't get sued, because, I mean, for God's sake, let's not another person get sued and all royalties nicked off this uh, thing. Not that we make any money, but anyway. When you dedicated this song to our group, a little beat combo from Dublin at your gig at the Olympia last year, it meant everything. I didn't get to meet you for a hello that night as the robe was running away from us. As in, couldn't be bothered. But everyone in the theatre got to meet you and each other on a higher plane. Oh, I'd have to read all this out. Um, I'll, I may as well. Years ago, I remember someone using the word mad to describe what you were on about. Well, in a world of war, greed and suffering, all I could hear was a higher form of sanity. I was with some atheists that night at the Olympia who thank God for you and your music as I do. Some songs change your life. Some songs save your life. Some songs are your life. I love how Bono doesn't um, exaggerate in any of these letters in any sort of way. On my way home, an angel-headed hipster sitting on the curb drinking for a can sung a cappella. I assume not the actual song. Um, oh no, here we go. All the lost who can't be found, who feel they're dead and hanging round. It's the broken hearts who are breaking ground. We can be, sh- we can, we can sure hear the truth in your sound. Even the drunk can feel sober listening to you, and the other way round too. Your fan, Bono. So there we go. What do you think of that letter, Tyler? Does Does Bono drink before these letters? I think it's a um, it's a mandatory thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I mean, I, I normally normally I would rip into you for for the mistakes you made reading that out, but I read a lot of those letters. But it is a lot of nonsense that comes out of Bono's mouth. He doesn't. He it it is sometimes like he's desperate to be recognised as a poet. I think he goes big on a lot of these songs. And then, I mean, if you're writing letters to the luminaries that he's writing to, then you're sort of always in the realm of exaggeration, aren't you? So, yeah, and I'm, and I'm not trying to do down Bono's sincerity. I'm sure I'm sure he does feel that way about, about the Verve. And um, I think I got a little taste of that kind of enthusiasm over this past week or so. Urban Hymns, it's an album that there are other connections to you two with. 
So, for example, Bono, when he wrote, I think he wrote an article or stated there were six songs that he wished he'd written, and Lucky Man was uh, was one of those songs, which we'll obviously get to get to later on. That was really weird what he said because he said it, there are six songs between 1986 and 2006 that he wishes he'd written, and that, and that was one of them. And I just feel that's a really weird, mm. you know, time frame. Why well, don't you say over the last 20 years or something like that? It's, it's, possibly, it's just a bit weird, that. Because it's just before the Joshua Tree started, and that was just, I don't know. It's I think it's Bono probably trying to like create a, an interesting periodization out of something that isn't really there at all. Um, they do get compared quite a bit as well. Not as much as your obvious ones, your Coldplay's, your Killers, that sort of thing. But we, uh, there was a description of them sounding like U2's young brooding stepbrother, which I think is an interesting way of thinking about it. This is definitely a broody album. Oh yes, yeah, certainly. Um, I did ask, I did send out a tweet asking for uh, some opinions and some uh, thoughts on the Verve. And interestingly enough, um, loads. Oh, oh, so, so many. I'm not going to bother reading them all out. I'm just going to li- whittle it down to a, a round two. Um, <laughs> and so what a coincidence, M- Miguel. Miguel Angel, I think I'm going to pronounce it that way. Miguel Angel, I I, I don't know, um, uh, said that at the time a friend asked me if I'd heard the new U2 record, uh, and it was Bittersweet Symphony, and uh, and he thinks that Urban Hymns is a masterpiece album. But it's, it is interesting, and I think U2 would certainly have taken that as a compliment. And oh, yeah. I think also, I mean, we haven't stated this so far, but Urban Hymns did come out, I believe, before pop yeah it came out in no it oh it came out after pop that's quite surprising uh there are some similar sounds on this on this album mm. and i thought oh maybe you two have stolen that i don't really think the verve were in the mode of stealing or copying or wanting to sound like anybody else so i, I, I guess it's, it's probably just stones. a coincidence well yeah we'll get on to that but it's it is interesting that the two bands were did have at least a few sounds going on at the same time and the the it can if you're a music nerd like us and like I imagine some of our listeners then you can hear certain similarities on a few songs that, and and sometimes that might even surprise you. Well, did you listen to the mashup that I posted on uh, on Twitter? You would would have been among about three other people, um, and it was a mashup of Bittersweet Symphony. And beautiful day, and it is—it's absolute garbage. It's—it's—it's it's, it's not a mashup. It's not a mashup. It's not a remix. It's some loser. Who's like, yeah. Oh, I think I'll put these two songs together. So they sped up "Bittersweet Symphony" and then just played "Beautiful Day" over the top. It's not a remix. It's not a mashup. It is an absolute travesty. And I—I I, I mean, why is that on the internet? I don't. Did you did you clock how many views that had? probably about 700 or something but it made me laugh because of how terrible it was and as if someone's put some time and effort into it but you know i'm not going to do down the goal to call it a mashup the goal that's i mean i i I can't do anything like that i've never tried to do a mashup but i genuinely think if i had all the stems which this guy clearly didn't (laughs) if i had all the stems i could do a, a better job than that well having never done anything like this before I think the um, the emphasis is on is on mash, 
And uh, Craig Farley um, said, have you guys heard Noel Gallagher's version of Bittersweet Symphony done in the early 2000s? Pretty good. I did hear that, and I, I did think it was pretty good. It was fine. I just I wish there was a full band Oasis version of that, because um, imagine Liam Gallagher just really getting into that song. They have got they hold Richard Ashcroft and The Verve in such high esteem, the Gallagher brothers do. So mm. I think it, it, it would have been something that both Gallagher brothers could have got on board with. Maybe even today, maybe that that's what could bring them back together. Well, he's on this record is Liam, um, quite late on in the album, um, officially, and then apparently he's credited for hand claps, which are not necessarily official. But I mean, I think if you're being asked to be credited for hand claps, then mad, not worth it. Um, yeah, last no, connection. Not really. Uh, last connection I've got is Chris Potter, one of the uh, producers. The Verve did produce this. Um, them, Youth and Chris Potter he uh, is responsible for mixing Potmart live from Mexico City so interesting connection I didn't know that I'm, re- I'm, I'm and, reaching uh, we, we did mention on the last episode that we'd like to see Oasis play the Potmart stage there is a camcorder version of one of the nights um, of Oasis it's not it's not full, but it's it's about fifty six minutes mm-hmm. of a of the the set. It's good. It sounds it sounds alright. You can look past it, and it's really interesting because you've got Oasis performing to a half empty stadium on a Pop Mart stage, and you you can't really imagine Oasis playing to many half empty stadiums in nineteen ninety seven. No. So it was interesting on multiple levels, and. Even the songs where Noel was singing, Liam was sat at the front of the stage, you know, with his uh, tambourine, you know, and he looked, he was just looking around. It was like he was taking it all in. And it's just so different to where the band eventually went to. And it was nice. It was a nice throwback to a, you know, a moment in time. And I don't even know if Noel will know that that's online, but it was interesting to see Oasis in that setting and playing to not the crowd. Hmm. Well, so if you are interested in uh, us blathering on about Oasis, obviously you can go back a week. Um, but I don't. I think people oh, were our listenership went up by sixteen percent last week, last time around. Good grief! Someone got their uh, got the grand <laughs> to listen. <laughs> it's so far the uh, highest, uh, the fastest downloaded episode of the year, and we've had a few high ones this year as well. Good grief. Um, the other thing that so, I thought I'd, I'd mention... Cheers, Noel and the lads. Yeah. The other thing I thought I'd mention about this album is the just before we get into it, or we, we, we look at the, the uh, musical milieu in which it was birthed. I assume you've got the top ten, as usual. I have, yeah. Yeah, good. Um, the cover photo. Um, someone once told me that that cover photo was taken in Maine's uh, Park in Wigan. I, I, no, I still don't no, know if I've not. said that wrong. No, it's Richard. It's Richmond Park, but it's just one of those things where you just believe something because someone said it once, and um, that just shows you how it, it's. Me- and I can't believe. Sometimes I don't actually believe you're from Wigan. It's it's so it, the reason Johnny is struggling with this word, and a lot of people struggle with the word. It's uh, spelled M E S N E S. Menses. And no, it's Mains Park. I said Mains. No, you didn't. You said Men's Park. Mesnes. Mes- Mesner's Park. No, it's not, it's not Mesner's Park. It, um, <laughs> it's Richmond Park. But I used to think it was Hay Hall where the Verve famous... This is probably the most famous gig in the history of Wigan where in 1994, 
the Verve played uh, a, a what's it called a country um, country estate park. Are you sure it's ni- Are you sure it's ninety four? By the way, I'm pretty sure it's nineteen ninety four. Okay, fine, fine. Doesn't matter. Anyway. Um, you know, it's so famous that two Wiganers can't actually remember when it was. But that is something that when I was growing up, I uh, the older generation, that's something they would talk about. And all the pubs in Wigan were absolutely full that day. And they're having verve listening parties. And then people walked. And they w- actually would have walked right past my house, where I live now, to get to, uh, to, get to the venue, which was just a big field. And um, I've, there was a, a, about 10, 15 years ago, there was a petition to get the Verve to come and pl- when the Verve got back together in uh, 2007, 2008 kind of time. There was a petition for them to come and play the the local stadium, which was at the time called the JJB Stadium. And I, I just, I really wish that I'd ha- that would have happened. It would have been such a huge musical moment in in my hometown. And I, and I think everybody has that relationship with a band. Um, or a, an, maybe even an arena or a venue. You want big things to happen in your hometown, and I do liken the Verve to having a. a the, they're like a football team. They're my local football team. They're my local band. So it doesn't matter really what they do. I'm going to be interested in them. And I'm going to support them because that's how I feel about them. I think similar to the Oasis chat that we had last week, I've always been aware, but not really that that into the Verve as a kind of swerve if you like because lots of people said oh you know this is the current thing this is a local thing and you have that rebellious side that makes you want to be like well if that's the local thing then i'll do something different i don't want to just be the same thing from the same place but um but i definitely never i've never disliked um the verve and it's just weird that i've never really got into this album because it, it if i had done it it would have been one of those mainstays that i would have always come back to because there's so much to like on it and also a lovely mixture of very poppy and accessible and deep and interesting you know so i mean i'm just a bit annoyed that i didn't really get into this a bit earlier to be honest and um the whole Is, hasn't that been the story of tummel for us both though well i think the story of tummel is basically we don't have a very eclectic <laughs> taste in music even though we thought we did <laughs> It's basically. Oh, let's just do the catchphrase. Let's do the catchphrase. We don't know anything about you two. Yep. Um, we don't know anything about the Verve. Tick. We don't know anything about any band. No. Nope. Um, so uh, don't get annoyed at us. Send your fam- Send your angry letters somewhere else. I'm sick of them. <laughs> we don't actually get any hate mail, by the way, which is which is odd. I mean, I'd brace myself for a lot of it, um, but no. <laughs> Usually, when people point out how wrong we are, it's in a spirit of just f- fun, really. I think, and just. Uh, Joyous reverie. Yeah, people do seem to put up with us. Anyway, you got, is that everything? This is a real long album, and I don't want to. I don't want to spend that long talking about it. <laughs> uh, so take that, listeners. Let's, uh, if we if we could finish this review in the same amount of time it takes to listen to the album, I'd be happy with. I that. wouldn't. It takes which is an hour and fifteen forever. It's a really long, unnecessarily long as well. All right, okay, fine. Well, well, do you want me to say hit it, and then you can yeah. do the chart? Hit it. In at number ten this week, the drugs don't work by the Verve. Down to number nine, it's Men in Black by Will Smith. New on the chart at number eight, it's Just For You by M People. New on the chart at number seven, it's Please by U2. I've never heard of them. New on the chart at number six, it's Got Till It's Gone by Jane featuring Q-Tip and Joni Mitchell. Number five now, down from number three, it's Tub 
Tumping, uh, tub, uh, tub Thumping by Chumba Wumba. New on the chart at number four, it's Arms Around the World by Louise. In at number three, down from two, it's Sunshine by Dario G. What a tune that is. New on the chart at number two, it's Stand By Me by Oasis. And staying at number one for another week, it's Something About The Way You Look slash Candle In The Wind by Elton John. Oh, yeah, I forgot this was this was hot off the um, hot off the death of Diana, wasn't it? Yeah, um, odd... the tragic yeah, death I, yeah. of Diana, Prin- Princess of Wales. She wasn't racing up the charts, I'm saying, but like it was it was rocking the nation, definitely. Yeah, okay, fair enough. Uh, so there we go, a bit, bit of a mixed bag for the chart. A few songs I really remember. And to be honest, right, Candle in the Wind must be one of the best-selling singles of the 90s just because of how um, Im- important it seemed and the amount of poignance it had. Um, because you know the princess of hearts and all that, yep. um, princess. which may she rest in peace. And it's interesting that there are a lot of tunes that you really remember, like "Stand by Me" by Oasis, "Sunshine" by Dario G. Um, men, you know, the Men in Black, the drugs don't work. They all at the same time. While you had this one big huge single, which seemingly didn't get off the chart for quite a while. Hmm. No, I, I agree. It, it takes you right, right back. Right back to the nineties. Um, yeah. Well, mm. without further ado, should we should we get into um, track one, "Bittersweet Symphony"? Put that needle on that disc of wax. <laughs> so, track one, "Bittersweet Symphony," five minutes and fifty-seven seconds. Yeah, bit too long, which is going to be a theme going through this. But, however, I don't want to start on a negative note because obviously this is a great song. Um, and if, you know, old Paul Hewson sticks it on his 60 songs that saved his life, then I'm not going to disagree. It's got... I'm, I'm going to try and sum up what that that um, oft-used and um, nicked thing was before we get into the whole boring Rolling Stones conversation. Try and sum up what I think it sort of feels like and see if you agree with this, Tyler. So, I think... This has got a pleasing inevitability and circularity to it. So that's how I would describe that. Which I know it's a Rolling Stones thing, not the Verve thing. But they recontextualize it. It's not a Rolling Stones thing. Isn't it? The Rolling Stones nicked it. Did they? Off whom? Um, And um, from my notes, the opening strings are sampled from the 1965 Andrew Oldham orchestra recording of the Rolling Oh of the Rolling Stones song. <laughs> Hang on, no, the song it the song itself was inspired by This May Be the Last Time by the Staple Singers. Okay, well I mean, let's get this out, out of the way. Um they never made any money off this song, did they, until very recently, like a couple of years ago, isn't that the case? Uh yeah, so it was in May two thousand nineteen uh, Richard Ashcroft stated, as of last month, Mick Jagger and Keith Richards signed over all of the publishing rights for Bittersweet Symphony, which was a truly kind and magnanimous thing for them to do. Yeah, 22 years after the song came out. Yeah. Uh, you, know, you know, when uh, how much money do you make off music these days? I think... I'd- I, I tell you what, I, this is why I will never cover the Rolling Stones. I know I like to take the, the, the Peter Schmeichel out of Mick Jagger for that god-awful performance at the Hall of Fame. But, like, I did just 
They're awful people. <laughs> they don't respect other artists at, at, at all, and they have ev- they have all. How much money do you need? Well, I was going to say they may not. They may have just wanted to double check they were completely solvent before they relinquish the rights to that. We don't know. You know, they might not have. Any Richard money. Ashcroft in 1997 probably couldn't afford a packet of fags. Maybe he still can't anymore because he still doesn't make anything off this this song. It it tr- it truly winds me up, and I know I normally agree with the letter of the law, but the, the Rolling Stones, you really don't need any more money. No, I t- I completely agree. Have you ever properly listened to the verses of this song? Yeah, I mean, you must know, you must know this song off by heart. I don't know it off by heart, lyrically speaking. If if someone put it on, I could go with the melody and the. Like a lot of like, if someone asked me to write down the lyrics to this song, I would find it. I'd know some of them, but not all of them. And this is because it's become one of those songs, and this is a theme on this album with the next song and a couple of others. They're so well known, some of these, that you basically, you don't really, I, I, they become so familiar to you that you don't really actually examine them, and you need a process like this to actually defamiliarize yourself and, li- and go back into the actual lyrics, you know. T- um, do you not feel that? Like something just... It's like wallpaper eventually. You stop looking at it. I am incredulous that you don't know the lyrics to songs. Well, I know some of them. It's just... It, I just... I, I... People have remarked on this before. I can be in a club at 3am completely drunk. I can't even spell my own name. But I'm singing along to songs I heard once 15 years ago. I just seem to remember lyrics. And I I don't understand how people aren't like that. How because it's all I've ever known. I thought I genuinely thought everybody was like that until people started to tell me that. Oh, you singing along to Dex's Midnight Runners last night? I was like, what? I, I couldn't name a Dex's Midnight Runners track. Yeah, but you're so, a, um, you, um, you were a mid level karaoke pub um, guy for a while. Mid level, generous. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. It's a. It's one of the, that's genuinely one of the nicest things you've ever said to me. Well, take take that compliment to the bank. Um, I do like I do know the lyrics to this song. Uh, which particular lyric are you taking umbrage with? No, no, no umbrage whatsoever. It's just I just I would say to people who maybe are similar to me, like go back and listen and just um, just 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 see if it if if it's surprising listening to this song, reading back through the lyrics because. Like I said, it just becomes very familiar. And the thing that struck me this time, doing a bit of reading about um, old Mad Richard, um, is, you know, you know, he, sc- he screams out, have you ever been down? I think, obviously, for a song to this popular, it's got to resonate with lots of people. And they might not have the specific blend of melancholia and, um, well, I, I think just depression that, that Richard Ashcroft has. I think he's, he's talked relatively frankly about uh, being someone who is quite depressive. Him screaming out that, have you ever been down, this time actually got through to me. And it's like with going back and listening to Wonderwall last week, it's it's difficult to take something that's so part of the wallpaper of rock and roll and just generally growing up and actually, you know, and actually to think about it in a new and interesting way. Yeah, I think it's one of those songs that you'll find your way with. Obviously, I, I mean, obviously, sometimes you can just get swept along with this is a really big song at the moment and I'm hearing it a lot, mm. but it might not at that time have any particular impact or relevance to your life. But it is something that will, will come around. It's very emotive and um, 
I I, I remember hearing a a, um, a story on Radio Two about a guy who was basically about to top himself and heard this song and it it was just like an, you know a huge epiphany moment and because of that song he he started to just th- things in his head started to sort out and it's that's a really powerful thing to be able to say to a songwriter that your song saved my that's life true but I mean, um but i mean if he heard the line you're a slave to money then you die i mean <laughs> that to me i'd be like right well may as well step off the bridge well, I think you know in, in that line is is in a part where the, the the protagonist is feeling quite nihilistic, and still in the depths of depression. But you only really begin to under, understand depression sometimes once you've come out of it, once you, you've been down, and then you've got back up. And I think that's where the uplifting quality for this song uh, comes from. And I imagine it's it's helped a lot of different people. And maybe for a lot of people, it's just one of those absolute classic anthems that you sing on a night out or when you're getting ready. Um, and, you know, there are there are a lot worse songs that you could get ready to. than I, I've been listening to this, just walking through Wigan. There's something about listening to this album while walking around Wigan for me that is quite interesting. You're bashing into people it, and knocking them over with your shoulders in a leather jacket. <laughs> I do, do you know what? Since we start, since we talked about Oasis a few weeks ago, I have noticed a little bit of a swagger. <laughs> I, I've I've picked up a little bit of a swagger, and um, I, I don't. I just have this, you know, this thing about me. It's that teenage angst thing again. I'm a teenager again. Um, interesting fact about uh, this this song and the 1990s or 1997 music scene mm-hmm. is <clears throat> both. Oasis's Wonderwall and Pulp's Common People only got to number two on the chart as both were kept away from number one by... Would you like to guess which which duo kept Oasis and Pulp off the chart? Daphne and Celeste? Off the, uh, off the top ones? No, Robson and Jerome. <laughs> Uh, if you're unfamiliar with that that band, uh, Jerome is... Uh, what was his name in Game of Thrones? Put me on the spot here. Oh, that's annoying. What was his... Uh, Tyrion's mate. Yeah, no. Did he give me the neck? Bron. Bron. Yeah. Bron. Yeah. So, so Jerome is, is Bron, and he used to do a bit of crooning with uh, Robson Green back in the 90s. <laughs> but I just find that really, really interesting that... Uh, Robson and Jerome's version of uh, I Believe slash Up on the Roof kept Wonderwall off the top spot and the cover of Unchained Melody kept Pulp's Common People off the top spot. What was going on in 1997? People like sugary nonsense. That's what was going on, I think. Yeah. Well, to finish this uh, this this song, I think it's iconic, it's important, and it's era-defining. Uh, the opening strings, um, whoever wrote it originally... Yeah, for me, it, it will always remind me of this song because this is the one I heard first. Uh, great start to an album. Yeah, reminds me of a lot of car adverts, though, but there we go. Also, Johnny, I think that there might be a better song to start off an album on this album. So uh, Really? We've, we've got that to look forward to. Oh, but I, th- I still think, I mean, I'll have the last word on this then. Um, I, st- I think it is a good starter, not just because of its sonic you know, kind of quality. And I, I, I think the production is very good on this album. Um, but I think... If there's one thing you take away, and this is obviously a very trite thing to say, but the whole thing is a bittersweet symphony. There's a lot of melancholia, but there's a lot of um, energy and, dare I say, verve, you know, and power. 
and enthusiasm and so the whole thing is just it is a symphony of bitter and sweet and pop melodies very very easily digestible melodies and actually quite deep dark um quite groove laden tracks so it's gonna be an interesting one yeah uh it was released on the 16th of june 1997 charted at number two and uh it was kept off the top spot by the puff daddy and faith evans tribute to notorious big i'll be missing you that's all i've got on uh bittersweet symphony now it's time for a bitter something else <laughs> with uh track number two sonnet at four minutes 21 seconds now a sonnet is a well-composed bit of verse and writing did you just write down that link before you said it? Is it, or was that off the cuff? That was off the cuff. Wow, Shakespeare himself couldn't have done better. Um, all right, well let's let's test your knowledge, Tyler. Define a sonnet. Oh, <laughs> uh, I <laughs> uh, five lines. Is it five lines? Fourteen. Fourteen lines. There's something about five. Is it? Well, there's something... five sets of metrical feet known as iams. Which means it's written in iambic what, Tyler? Pentameter is the word I was trying to think yeah, think of. Go. Yeah, Johnny, taking me back ten years, mate. <laughs> uh, right. So, sonnet was uh, written by Ashcroft, released on. It was the last single from this album, released on the second of March, nineteen ninety-eight. It charted at number seventy-four. Really? It was the Verve's last. Yeah. This is like this is like a whole year after the. I guess everyone was well, bored of it. About by six then. months. Yeah, it was the Verve's last single for nine years, um, wow. and the release of Sonnet. I think I think it was kind of expected that it wouldn't, you know, sell that well. So it was limited to just five thousand copies. Despite the huge radio coverage it received, the official chart refused to recognize it as a single because of the extra co- uh, content. It came in a big like cardboard mailer with all the previous singles as well. Oh, so nice. it was like a, it was a big, you know, it was a big nice thing. Um, and the reason it charted was because of import sales. Um, that the, the people started buying it from elsewhere and getting it imported into the UK, and that's how it ended up entering the UK chart. Not really a hundred percent on how that works. No, but and it's a, a testament to the popularity and catchiness of the song, and it's a it's a big double hitter. This isn't it. I mean, similar to "Beautiful Day," "Stuck in a Moment," we've got "Symphony," "Sonnet." I think equally strong starts to an album. And what I really like about this song is that quality that we talked about quite a lot last week with Oasis. Although I do think they're much better lyricists than Oasis. Um, is the I think the multiple interpretations that you get from this. There's obviously a big crossover with drugs and depression and sadness and trying to grab life by the horns. I think those are the the big themes on the album. So when it says um, sticker in your veins, you know, obviously that's, that's obvious reference to, to drugs. And then there's a bit later on where he says sinking faster than a boat without a hull. And I know I'm good at mishearing things, but to me, it sounds like sinking faster than a boat with alcohol. And it's like a you know like a boat just full up with alcohol just going down down down, which might be a good metaphor for um, you know, substance abuse and that kind of thing. So, it's a it's a sort of plaintive and sad um, well poem I suppose or or song to that uh, I think and and I think you can take so many different interpretations. What's yours, Tyler? 
Um, I I've just had to Google something actually because I've always had a theory that because the movie Titanic came out in 1997 and because of the line sinking faster than a boat without a hull, I always wondered if that was what Ashcroft was thinking about. However, <laughs> the album came out before the movie. Yeah, and um, also the Titanic obviously did no, have a hull. Yeah, but no, no one had heard about the Titanic before the movie came out, so uh, no. it's impossible that the two things could be linked. Let's click back to my notes and see what else I've got. <laughs> I think this is almost it's better than like that. a. <laughs> I think it's almost like a country song. This, yeah, uh, which is somewhat surprising. It's not something I expected to say on this review. There's another one that sounds a bit countryish, but I think it's the arrangement, and it does feel kind of cozy a little bit at the start. I think it's just the way that it all comes in. It does feel kind of cozy, but then the themes on it are so dark in places. Yeah, there's an interesting dichotomy between the lyrics and the music. The lyrics seem quite destructive, um, a person on the brink of a of a breakdown, but the music is really calm. Mm. It never really breaks the rhythm, and it's a bit sh- maybe a bit shoegazy. What do you think? Um, yeah, I mean, it- could it could it be accused of that? Well, it's it's not my bloody Valentine, but it, the whole album's got a, a, a lot of production and guitar and sweeping arrangements to it. So I think that's that's part of it. It's it's just it's a really distinctively produced album, and it's it's very enjoyable to listen to. I I do prefer this whole texture definitely to. And I know I keep making comparisons with Oasis just because they're in a similar ballpark and era, but I do prefer this as a, as a, as a texture as it goes. Um, and I just like lines like. Well, this love, if if you want it, that that conditional quality yeah. to it is really interesting. And I guess the whole conceit of the song, I suppose, the the simple reading would be, sonnets are are something that make love seem beautiful and ideal, and they're quite ornately constructed, but they're also quite brittle. And re- in real life, love isn't actually like that. Although I think that's quite a basic reading of what sonnets are. Shakespeare was deconstructing what love meant within the sonnets when he was writing them. Well, um, I, I think the message is about having hope and, you know, that, it, you know, as long as you, as, if, even if you've got nothing else, as long as you've got hope, then that that's the positive that you should take. And I think it's a song for people that are, you know, close to hitting rock bottom and that's two songs in a row that could really if heard at the right time, could really have an impact on somebody and make them just turn a corner or, you know, turn the page, just see a light at the end of a, a deep, dark, depressing tunnel. Mm. Also, I don't know if you noticed this, and I, I, I don't know if this is just me, I notice how good Ashcroft slash the Verve are at writing outros. They're the absolute masters of the outro. They take something really simple, like just a word, like, like by now, and that becomes a really... Just count how many songs as we go on have got amazing outros. What, by repeating one line? That's something I've been very critical of in a later track. Well... And it's it's something that Richard Ashcroft has continued to do in his solo career, of, of which I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a pretty big fan. Well, yeah, we might have, yeah, it's not made an impact on me that... I think they should have just he should have just stuck with the verb and knew his place a little bit, but... I don't want to upset Mad Richard or he'll duff me up um, or knock me down on the street. Um, yeah, we'll, we'll just see if this recurs as this idea of, of there being great outros. Well, let's keep rolling. And track number three is The Rolling People, seven minutes, one second. 
yeah, and I've written the length is actually justified here. I think this album is bloated. It's too long. I think it, it could be a lot better. And I'm sure I'm annoying a lot of Verve fans are like, no, you can't leave even a second of it. But um, I think you could you could get it down to 10 tracks and it would be way stronger. But I, I would take all seven minutes, whatever, of this. Um, it's psychedelic. I think this is probably more of a flavor of their earlier stuff. Um, and to me, this, this reminds me of... I mean, the fleeting, fleeting period of time where I actually did enjoy going out to Wigan for nights out and there was rock and roll, uh, dare I say, a, a drink of beer or two. Not drugs, but lots of um, lots of that feeling and that rolling rhythm of a, of a night unfolding and a tide of people and being... Everything we're missing now, to be honest, in this pandemic, you know, being dragged along by your friends to places in a good way. That's what I get from this. This That's what I get from this Rolling People song. And it's a it's a real anthem for that. Would you do a night out here in Wigan when all this is over? Uh, in a in a hazmat suit, yeah. Why not? I don't think we've been out here in Wigan in over ten years. <laughs> no, imagine what'll happen when we hit the scene. <laughs> Everyone will be like, "Hey, is that? Are you um? Are you are you those uh, two podcast people? Yeah, uh, we uh, yeah yeah. yeah. yeah well, will you shut yeah, up then, please? Yeah, yeah. That'll be what. <laughs> will, you will you will you please just stop? Yeah. Could you retire, please? <laughs> Um, so interestingly, this is the first song on the album which is credited to the whole band. Um, it's mm. uh, the the writer. It says under the writer, it says the verb, and I think that really comes across because yep. it is a different sound. Full band composition, full band sound. Um, it's because it, with the first two tracks, you can kind of hear how Ashcroft would have written them on the piano or on just on acoustic. They would guitar. both work well acoustically. This would lose a lot. Yeah, and as, as honestly, I I don't know how big the Verve are worldwide, but this track really really has a sound of Actung Baby and a lot of pop in it. Yeah, and uh, it's much it's much more psychedelic. It's similar to the Verve's early material, but I'd I'd argue more polished. Um, and and it's 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 just it's just a catchy song once you listen to it. I'm, you know, if I've got lyrics here, but I, I'm worried that if I just read them out, they're going to sound it's just lyrics, you know, out of context. But I, you can really sense this song would be amazing live. Yep. And if I'm someone like um, a Bono, who who obviously would have listened to this album when he's listening to this track, this track, he must be thinking, man, that's the kind of thing we should be going for. Even even if they have borrowed a little bit of the sound from 90s u2 like they this is obviously what u2 would be going for when they're writing a live track for anyone writing a live track because you know people are going to sing along to it you know people are going to like it yeah and get taken along with um like it's gonna it's gonna hit them like a wave and bring them along um interesting you mentioned that that bono bit i think it really does have the act and baby groove sort of thing um and I, I think if you go to the 410 mark of the song where Ashcroft's doing a bit of ba ba da 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 kind of stuff, it's very, very Bono-ish. Like, and I don't, I don't and I mean that in a in a reciprocal way, as in, yeah, Bono might have, as you said, listened to this and then put that into his performance. Um maybe there is a bit of Bono a bit of Ashcroft in um in the two thousands attitude. You know like all you know the way that he plays the fly in Elevation, like that. That <laughs> the, oh, Elevation. Uh, okay, there's like a swagger to it that I think is definitely the. What were you laughing at? Were you thinking about the bomb version or something? 
No, I was thinking about the from the sky down version. Oh Jesus, let's not think about that one. <laughs> Kicks a chair. Uh, <laughs> which is, I can imagine both Richie Ashcroft um, and uh, Bono doing that. I've seen Bono do it. What kick? It'd probably be the least rock and roll thing Richard Ashcroft had ever done, and the most rock and roll thing Bono had ever done. Yeah, well, as you as you said last week, he's got this reputation, hasn't he, Ashcroft, for being um, a bit of a, a wild man, Mad Richard, as people said, Mister um, Rock and Roll. Well, I've heard a story. I can't I can't confirm this because I've never seen the footage, but I heard that he was on one of those early morning like shows, like you know, like a soccer AM. Yeah. Or a, a a good morning Britain, something like that, and he came from performing, jumped over the back of the sofa because he's cool, and a, a a bag fell out of his pocket, which had a um a, for some reason like it looked like he brought a, a little bag of talcum powder or washing powder Maybe with it was, him, um, which I just sweet thought... or some sort of sweetener for his tea. Uh, yeah, I just thought it was a really strange thing to carry around in your pocket. But apparently, apparently, I've never seen it. But apparently, this fell out on the couch, and every everybody saw it, and it's caught on camera, and it's just like, Uh-oh. whoops, you know, yeah. So uh, that's that's um, that's the way uh, Rich Ashcroft rolls. Well, I th- apparently, I think I, I think I've got to um, also just put thing the focus back onto Nick McCabe for this song as well because it is a it's a really good guitar song. Yeah, and Owen Morris, um, sorry. Owen Morris, who'd um, produced what story, Morning Glory, that we talked about last time. Moen Morris? Is that the guy that's always cutting his lawn? Owen Morris. Um, yeah, my, my pronunciation pronunciation isn't very good because I can't even say the word pronunciation. You're piss-pronouncing your worms again, Johnny. Anyway, he said he referred to McCabe as, without a shadow of a doubt, the most gifted musician I've ever worked with, but also complained he was an utter nightmare to work with, saying he'll never play the same thing twice. He carries on. Now, you can ask Noel Gallagher to play the same guitar line a hundred times, and as long as there's a good reason for him doing it, he'll do it. But with Nick, you've got no chance. But that's what he does, you know? Um, so I think that's that's quite interesting. And I think it's similar to... Um, I think it's similar to Edge in terms of... And I don't just want to make fatuous comparisons, but his bandmate Jones said he didn't treat the guitar like a guitar. Again, something that people say about Edge. He didn't want to be a guitar hero. Again... And he wasn't into Jimmy Page. Well, I mean, that's not true because look at From the Sky Down. Or maybe don't look from from the sky down. No, um, uh, it might get loud. And um, it was all about texture. And I think if you can make a comparison between the two two guitarists, it's definitely that idea of don't let's just not just play a guitar line. Let's create a whole landscape. And that seems similar. And I think you definitely get a landscape here. So maybe a bit of crossover, um, not just between Ashcroft and Bono, but between um, McCabe and The Edge. Yeah, certainly. Um, this song, for me, I I didn't really know this song before I started listening to the album. And it showed me who the Verve were because it was it was a fair judgment from me because I was judging this song on its own merits, not the reputation it had picked up on, not how I'd seen the song in previous years. And I think they showed themselves to be a, just a great band that that can really go for it and really put a great rock song together. And this is the kind of song that will make me buy a ticket to go and watch you live. Yeah. And I think, so I think, therefore, it's a really important song to have on the album, also have on the album fairly early on, because a lot of the time you don't get to the back end of the album. Yeah, and you and th- I mean this is hits laden. I mean, especially considering what we're going to talk about next. 
Um, and yeah. it's it's it... uh, seven minutes. Seven minutes one. It's too long though. It could it could be two minutes shorter certainly. I like it for the texture, to be honest. But um, on an album this long, I, I do, I do take your point. Okay, so back to uh, an Ashcroft composition. It's track number four. The drugs don't work. Five minutes, four seconds. Yeah. So the brakes come on, and we get this very soulful, sad song. Now. I think this is another one of those ones that it means a huge amount, but what precisely it means is up to your own interpretation. Obviously, on the face of it, the drugs don't work. That cyclical thing of if you take lots of drugs, it's a short-term solution to a long-term problem. And um, Ashcroft is quoted in 1995 in Select Magazine saying, that's how I'm feeling at the moment. They make me worse, man, but I still take them. Out of boredom and frustration, you turn to something else to escape. Um, so obviously that's that's to do with enjoying drugs um, in in a way, but there are other readings. So if you have a look at some of the other readings of this of this Tyler, I don't want to hog all of the um, interpretations to myself. Uh, other readings I haven't, but uh, we'll get back to that in a minute. Uh, released on September the first, nineteen ninety seven, charted at number one. The it was the number one single immediately before Elton John's tribute to Diana, Princess of Wales. Yeah, and apparently it caught the same mood. Yeah, well, it made it made me, you know, think. Um, we British do like a cheery song for number one, don't we? <laughs> we 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 don't want you know common people or Stand by Me or we 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 want the we just want the drugs don't work and candle in the wind. Yeah, all that. Um, was it put? You like a candle in the wind? Unreliable. Great. <laughs> Is that is that Ricky Gervais's line? I don't know who said it, but I can't. I've never been able to get it out of my head. So it's not my joke, but. I've I've never heard I don't know I've never seen it again since normally it, I'll I'll catch it again but I it must have been a stand up that I saw once. Um, well, so obviously there's that the you know the whole uh, recreational drugs angle, but then we have the and I think this is probably what spoke to a lot of people, the idea of someone um, maybe going through an illness which requires drugs and then not being able to be to be helped by it so there is a lot of i mean there's a lot of sadness in in ashcroft's early life um his dad died from a blood clot when he was just 11 um and his wife uh kate radley's father um died of cancer uh and some sources claim that this was written or inspired by bedside moments for example and i hope you're thinking of me as you lay down on your side the drugs don't work they just make you worse but i know i see your face again so it's not just a song necessarily about someone who's taking something like i don't know a destructive drug like heroin for example it could be something that it's about a sad inevitable sad decline cheer, cheer well, stuff. i had a hangover i had a hangover the other day and let me tell you the paracetamol in the morning did not work at all <laughs> and did you think about this song were you, were you kicking yourself i genuinely thought that that was what this song was about i mean we're being glib but that's because it's difficult to talk about this song i've written down it's a bit like with everybody hurts or with or without you familiarity with this song kills the emotion i mean if this song had never come out and it came out tomorrow i imagine we'd be we'd be gushing about this but it's it's hard to get near it because you know if this comes on the radio and i'm at home and it's the sort of thing we'll come on at radio two at my mum and dad's house I probably wouldn't stick around to listen to it because I'm just like, no, nah, this again, you know. But it is a great song. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, 
I I really I like I do like this song. I think it's a great song, a really poignant song, like um like Sonnet and Bittersweet Symphony. I think it's got a real emotional weight. However, my favorite my favorite thing about this song is when the Verve get together for a big uh, concert, say it's Glastonbury or something. There's something really funny Ironic. about watching sixty thousand people with not a pupil in their eyes. <laughs> Singing along to the drugs don't work. There's 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 something in that that I find endlessly entertaining. <laughs> but you you know as I said before, you should take drugs responsibly. Well, yeah, indeed. <laughs> which is to say, illegal ones not at all. Um, la- Every everything in moderation, as my dad used to say. <laughs> Last thing I want to say about this is, Ashcroft said he realised twenty years ago that if he underlined with a big marker pen, the drugs don't work equals whatever interpretation then he'd be killing it for people so i like it when musicians are happy to hand over and say you know there you go slap your own interpretation on it whatever works for you and again he's the king of the outro it's a very very good outro to this song it's so i I think the fact that you can conjure up the outro in your head very easily as easily as anything else on this album is a testament to it well we're gonna have to agree to disagree on that i think um, track number five, Catching the Butterfly. It's six minutes, 26 seconds. Again, a Verve composition. Now, when I was doing some research about this, um, I sometimes... You see, I, I don't I don't believe in any of this New Age nonsense, personally, Johnny, but my mother's a big fan, all right? So normally, my mum will sometimes ask me what I've been dreaming about, mm. and she'll tell me what these dreams mean, which I... I love my mum, so I indulge her, yeah, right? Enough. But I, I there was there was a period of time where I was I was dr- constantly dreaming about being on a roller coaster and gritting my teeth so hard that all my teeth fell out, and my mum seemed to think that at the time I was worrying about money. I don't see the connection, but apparently, people who analyse dreams—that's what that is supposed to. I know mean. that teeth right, are meant to come up a lot, and they're meant to. But I thought that teeth are meant to symbolise death rather than money. But whatever. Well, um, well, there we go. So I when when I saw catching the butterfly and and I was um, reading the, the lyrics for this, I thought I'll have a look for what dreaming of catching a butterfly means, and it's about the timing of when to take action, when your passion, intuition, your soul's purpose are aligned. You can start to uh, start to sense when it's the right moment to go after what you want. Now, how vague is that? That's almost horoscope is vague. Is that from a fortune vague. cookie? Uh, it's from a website. Mm. Uh, it's called crystalclearintuition.com. Crystal clear is a bit of a lie there. Vague, yeah. ambiguous nonsense. It continues. The lesson in this dream is getting more confident with your own intuition. So you can take a swift action when the timing feels right. You are ready to reach out and catch the magic headed your way. Ugh. Yeah. Garb. Yeah. Uh, in terms of the song, nice melody. <laughs> uh, nice melody for the chorus. But what I really like is the, the, the sonic overload of the band. I really like it when this band let themselves go and just play together. It's, it sounds like a what I imagine a drug-fueled haze would be. Um, be like... Uh, I don't know, you know, others will have to tell me. Well, I mean, 
this it, it almost feels a bit beatly in terms of its when the Beatles did do a bit more of a psychedelic direction that's what it, what it feels like to me and I do love that whole catching the butterfly image that goes through it to me it rings of childhood and running after something you can't quite grasp or if you do grasp it too hard it'll it'll break in your hands I think again that that brings up this idea of uh, drugs and good times and trying to run after something that if you it looks beautiful but then if you get it actually it's just a crushed up bug in your hand um also um a little bit of overlap with you too because um one of the um lyrics is some may know through life no fun i want to feel i want to run but he doesn't do it in that melody but you know it's uh, just just something that i noticed i always seem to notice when someone says i want to run that would be really unexpected if <laughs> If, mash, uh, up. mash up, Richard. If, if Ashcroft just like burst into uh, where the streets have no name or still haven't found what I'm looking for, it, it would be so weird. Yeah, it would be almost like a different universe. I can't, I can't imagine it. It'll never happen, obviously, but I, I can't imagine a, a reality where it would. <laughs> no, that would be odd. I mean, to make the switch as well, technically, be very difficult. Uh, and I also think this is too long. Um, it's good. It's very good. But it, but a minute is misspent, I would say, and could be hacked off. Yeah. Okay, so track six, Neon Wilderness, two minutes, 37 seconds. This is Nick McCabe is singled out as a writer on this, but it is also attributed to The Verve as a whole band piece. Um, I First instinct for this was that it, it lacks a clear direction. I get that it's a sonic experiment, but I suspect it would um, it would cost a lot of money to get into the right state of mind to appreciate this song. <laughs> um, do you get? Do you know what yes, I mean? Yes, I do know what you mean. Um, I, I've put it's got a Fourth of July feel, which means I do actually quite like it in that way because it does feel experimental and very much a let's just mess around with some guitars and textures. We've got nice long out, long drawn out feedback notes and i think like fourth of july it could be good not to be played by a band live because i don't think you can replicate it that well but i think it would be decent you know build up music not necessarily walk on music but you know what i mean like that that okay we're going from the the dj's jukebox to lights go down and then here's a song that you can recognize is this is the band but they're not actually on stage playing it yet um i like it elevator music in the million dollar hotel god let's not go back to the Friggin' million dollar hotel. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, For a band that have nothing to do with you two, we're 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 linking things quite uh, quite successfully this yeah, week. Someone say tortuously. Um, okay, so let's move on in space and time. This is definitely a Verve song. Sorry, Johnny. How long is oh, it? Let's let's look before anyone complains. Uh, five minutes thirty six, according to my research. Thank you. Chris Potter is producing, not writing it, because I've just looked at the wrong column. Um, and this to me has, I don't know if you get this, I've got a kind of James Bond feel guitar line on this. Like the, if you go back and listen to this and think this could be like a weird James Bond song, then I think it kind of works. But maybe not. I haven't had that listening. Um, that's really the kind of thing that you should, you know, prep me for, Johnny. <laughs> If you want an opinion on whether I think something is a James Bond song, well, I want to keep it fresh. But um, well, there we go. Anyway, uh, you at home, you can you can decide about that one. Um, I've got that it's got an almost Jeff Buckley esque quality to it. It's a gentle, shuffly rocker, 
and um, I really like the outro on this one. Um, is this the one that you hate the outro for? No. Um, no, it isn't. I think it's a nice song. It's it's not my least favourite, but it's not exactly what I want at this point in the album. You don't think you just need to listen to um, it more? Perhaps. It's definitely a deep perhaps. cut. Um, yeah, certainly. I feel like we've... The thing is, I feel like we've been here before and it's been better. Yeah. Uh, and at this at this point, three. I want more I want more bangers. I want more, um, like, full band songs at this point. Obviously, you know, it's performed as a full band song, but I want something just a bit bigger, just something that's going to amp me up a bit. Well, uh, I, I can't imagine it being played live and... I think that's the problem. It, it just it just be a bit slow. I have just listened to while I've been talking. I've just listened to the first three bars, and I get the, where you're coming from with the bomb thing, but too slow. Um, it, well, I mean, it was played live because it, it was on that, and you can get this on Spotify, by the way. You can get a, a, a very decent recording of the Hey Hall gig that they did, um, and they definitely played that on there. Spotify. Yeah, because it, it was on the remaster. There's a four disc remaster version. This is where the old Spotify subscription pays for itself. Um, well, no, it doesn't, but whatever. I was listening to that, and you can um, you can hear some actual really good quality rather than just going on YouTube and looking at very grainy footage of them playing. Sorry, did you just say you're not paid up on Spotify? No, I'm saying it pays for itself. But, oh, I mean, that's right. Not true. Say. I'm, I'm saying overall it's probably not great value, but, um, but whatever, I'm enthralled to it now. Let me just live my life around it. Um, well, you like this song a hell of a lot more than I do. Well, I, I like um, it, and the thing that I've written down is this is comparative to last time where we where we did Oasis. I think overall this is where I started to feel this is an album that is more rich and insular, and you can go back to it and get more out of it. If you're on a desert island, I would take I would take this over What's the Story a hundred times. I mean, not just because it's longer, but because I feel like it's got more depth. But the next song is a better version of what this is trying to be as well. So I, I take your point that it is it is saturated, this album, a bit. Yeah, okay, track eight, Weeping Willow, four minutes, 49 seconds. This is ace, this is brilliant. And the, my one sad thing about it, I think he's got his best vocals on the whole album here. But when you have that hit into the chorus and it, and it goes, I hope you see what I see, you know, and it goes, do, 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 do. I love the bass doing that and following it, but I wanted him to carry on with that melody and build on it, but he doesn't. And I don't know, you know, when you expect that so you think, Oh, okay. The next line is going to go this way. Melody wise, definitely. And then it doesn't, you think lads, you've, you've missed an opportunity, but I will concede that maybe I'm not as good a mel- mel- melodist as Richard Ashcroft. So fair enough. Hey, no, I won't have that. <laughs> you, you, you're, you're all right. Um, in, uh, I was instantly attracted by the darker sound. I, 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 it wasn't necessarily what I would have predicted, but I, I wasn't displeased by it. Um, the piano, which is quite quiet in the mix, really ticks my boxes. I and that as well. I, for some reason, I just love when a piano is used properly. Um, and, and I think it's used subtly, and sporadically on this track, yeah. uh, there's an audible clarity with Weeping Willow that I I just haven't felt with the last few tracks, and it makes this song a lot bigger in terms of sound, and definitely a track that I I will be coming back to, but not a track I know very well. I feel like I know side side. I don't know how many sides this would be, you know, sixty, <laughs> but 
Um, I, I feel like I know the first five, six tracks a lot better than I than I do the rest of the album. But uh, well, good luck for the next hundred and four songs, guys. <laughs> one one thing I really liked about this as well is, I think it it really shows off. Um, Ashcroft's register and we've maybe not talked about this that much I think he can get written off as someone who has on some of his songs a, a similar register you know and not really pushing himself that hard writes beautiful melodies but you know like say on something like Sonnet he's not exactly going through a different registers but this one has got incredible you know backing vocals which I assume he does and maybe the band join back him up on but really nice high pitched vocals and shows off his range really well yeah, we should probably do a little bit of background, actually. So, The Verve technically broke up before this record um, because McCabe and Ashcroft fell out. So, a lot of this, the reason a lot of the songs on this album are written by Ashcroft is this was supposed to be his debut solo mm-hmm. album. So, um, if, if you think it's strange that Ashcroft is... Oh, unless you're fans of Coldplay and you're used to the lead singer writing all the songs. But... Um, this is the reason that there's such a huge difference between some songs on the album, particularly if it's a full band composition and an Ashcroft composition. Um, the Ashcroft songs have a similar tone to them because they were meant for something else. It does feel very much like an album of two halves. I mean, if you stuck all of the obvious Ashcroft ones on the first bit and then all the jam stuff on the second bit, it would be very, very disparate. Um but bit of a mashup in it. Bit of a mashup. But I feel like this is where it works best for me, anyway. Maybe not for radio play, but this is where you have the really strong rhythms and competency and great playing of the band mixing with some great singing and melody. And yeah, it, it's it's a real high point this for me. I really like this song. I got into it a lot today, doing some washing up. <laughs> Um, last point I'd say is um, I was wondering if maybe he's using maybe this is a great insight or maybe this is something that everyone's already said the weeping willow I mean he's a willowy guy he's melancholic could this be Ashcroft himself don't know <laughs> uh, Richard writing track number are you still with us track number nine lucky man Four minutes, 53 seconds. Written by Ashcroft, released on the 24th of November, 1997, and it charted at number seven. One of the six songs that Bono wished he'd written, apparently, at, at a certain point. Um, and yeah. to me, this is... Um, I mean, I'm not going to contradict him. This is a perfect pop song about the possibility of... Sorry, the impossibility of perfection. So I like that there's a nice steady measured way um of him contradicting himself all the way through and saying is this what happiness is and then saying how it's difficult to achieve and the song just seems to not be settled in itself even though it it does sound happy and obviously the the overriding lyric is he's a lucky man yeah i mean this is another one this is like uh the the all the singles on this this album played to death yeah yeah a lot of radio play, very successful. But this is a bit of a wet lettuce for me. I just it's the it's the it's like the meh one for me. I don't care about it as much. Well, I know it. If I'm drunk and I'm in a pub, I'll sing along to it. But I, I'll never put this song on. It just doesn't. It doesn't strike me. It's 
does it do anything for you really yeah because it's it's just it's so well made like there's there's i know what exactly what bono means here because he, he's he's talking about how well judged it is as a song like the it's one of the songs that all the melodies have to go that way you know there's, a, there's an inevitability about it and I, I do like the fact that it starts with that line happy well not technically but he says happiness and then more or less which is a good again it's that bittersweet um idea happiness more or less there's a nice um i'm gonna say like northern pessimism about that which i which i quite like i can imagine your dad saying that actually yeah you're happy george well, more or less yeah how are you, George? Yeah, I'm happy. More Surviving, or less. yeah. Um, he wouldn't. And then a, a big, a big exhale before he leaves the room. <laughs> <sighs> yeah, I, well, I, I, off, off he, he plods. I mean, it's not my favorite on the album, but I, I think it's, um, it's great. And I mean, great outro. <laughs> He's just saying, "Oh my my," but it works really well. <laughs> well, I know what I'm doing for the next song we write together. Good outro. I'm just going to repeat one line for the last two minutes of the song. You've got a whole album of outros. Oh, Johnny, one of these days. Anyway, track number 10, One Day. Uh, five minutes, three seconds, written by Ashcroft again. Um, this was really If God Will Send His Angels-esque. Did you did you notice that? I'll level with you. This is, this is the one thing I've got to say about this. This song is not adding anything else that isn't done better elsewhere on the album. That's it. Well, no opinion apart from that. So you're gonna have to carry this one. <laughs> well, I I think it's a lovely song, verging on country slash folk music. Maybe that's why I don't like it. Country is not really my wheelhouse, generally speaking. But you need to get into Neil Young, mate. You really you'd really like Neil I like Young. Some Neil Young, I don't mind him, but he's again he's at the, like the trendy good end of country, just like Johnny Cash. Whereas like actual country just annoys me. You can go and listen to Ted Nugent if you want. Uh, isn't he that guy who murders animals? Uh, probably. I wouldn't recommend listening to him either. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I don't know if he murders these animals by shooting them or by playing his music to them. Not the kind of gentle. Sorry for any. <laughs> Sorry for any Ted Nugent uh, fans out I'm there. Not. Turn, um, off. Turn off and leave. Yeah, I. I like one day track ten. My God. Um, but it could be improved by being three minutes long. It could also be improved by being the last track on yeah, the album. This is what I'm saying. Ten, ten tracks. And this, <laughs> this shouldn't be the last song. Uh, oh, God. We've got a, oh, got a... In terms of time, we've got another 24 minutes to go with record. And there's only three yeah, tracks. And that, that is a problem. I mean, I'm sure there are some Verve fans who wouldn't, like I said, wouldn't lose a second off this, but... It's no. like it for for an no. enjoyable album for an album I would say I like this last bit is an absolute marathon, and there is some good stuff in this last bit. Yeah, but it 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 just it it begins to it, listening listening to this album in one go. If you can do that, man, you're amazing. Uh, but anyway, uh, eleven this time. this time for like three minutes fifty. Uh, this seconds. this is enjoyably more upbeat, which I think is necessary at this time in the album. Like it's a lot more upbeat. But I just think if you've got other songs that, that do this kind of thing as well, save it for another album. You know, like, I mean, just just slow down, put it in the back. Um, I imagine... I was wondering if they knew they were coming to an end at this point. So they just thought, oh, we'll, we'll put everything, everything out. Um, well, yeah. I, I mean, the, the one thing that I took away from this is, I mean, and obviously I'm, I'm speaking as, as someone who predominantly, you know, is enjoying comparing this to you two in some sort of way. 
I wish you two would do more of this kind of thing because I was thinking all the texture and all the little bits would be something that if you're a real Verve fan, I'm sure you love every bit of it and you know every bit and you're waiting for all the little weird stuff that McCabe's doing and maybe could never replicate again and it's that magic in a jar or in a bottle or whatever it is, lightning in a bottle. Um, and I just feel like there's never I'm any... I'm a genie in a bottle, gotta rub me the right way. Yeah, um, so it, it's the kind of thing that you two would never or at least it seems like, would never allow themselves to do again. You know, hey, why don't we spend a minute or so just playing some music and see where it goes and improvise a little bit and have fun? It's like, no, no, it has to all be get um, Dead Mouse in or whatever and make it... Not Dead Mouse, who am I thinking of? Danger, Danger Mouse. Mouse in and make it really... David, David Jason. <laughs> get David Jason get him in. in. And fold as well. <laughs> yeah. and, and do you know what? <laughs> as mental as that is, I would listen to that album. Maybe, well, doesn't Penfold say crams quite a lot? Maybe that was what they were doing when they did Atomic Bomb. <laughs> crams. Crams from your table. <laughs> Bono's just going with a pen, writing it all down. Uh, Amazing. So yeah. this time um, came about because... Richard Ashcroft had a Wurlitzer keyboard that had just been sitting around and he started to play it one day. He said the chord progression came to him really easy, uh, but it wasn't going to be on this album until about a month before. Mm. Um, I think the song's song's better in isolation. Again, fatigue is a problem with this album. Particularly at this point, we're getting up to an hour. This is normally where most albums would be finished and you'd be having a brew. The supreme irony and of you saying that as we just tick over one hour, ten minutes of talking absolute drivel. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, this song is better in isolation. I was I was walking through town the other day and I had things on shuffle and this just came on. And it, it just being surprised by it and not being fatigued by, by the ten songs before it. Because... It, not that I've not enjoyed it, but there's there are huge emotional points on this album, and then there are really interesting parts of the album. So it it seems like a much bigger thing than it is. Yeah. It's all about um, context. And that hour fif- an hour fifteen isn't a long time. It's half a film, but it 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 just seems like a long time with because of the amount of places this album will take you. But in isolation, I enjoyed it a lot more. Hmm. Um. And, you know, I couldn't tell you which song I had on before or after it, but this song really cut through whatever I was thinking about, whatever I was doing, and I really paid attention to it. Yeah. Um, for, furthermore, Lazy Lyrics by Ashcroft uh, does seem to finish a lot of songs by repeating one line. Yeah, but in a cool way. Yeah, but when it's every track, do something else. End 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 a song. Just, just sing it once and end it. People will be surprised. Leave them wanting more, not less. That's what we do on this podcast. <laughs> we leave them wanting less. Yeah, definitely. Um, all right then. Um, Velvet Morning. This starts off with some. Um, well, it sounds like slide guitar or lap steel or something, which feels very out of place. This feels countryish to me. I don't like the way the vocals are recorded. Again, that sounds quite countryish, and I think. It's just, it'd be so easy to have a quick chat before you master in the record and just go, do we, do we need, couldn't this just be a B-side, guys? Like, do we need, let's just check the time, a further 4 minutes 57 of this. And it, it feels, apologies for fans, 
tired and unnecessary. And that's from me on this show. Well, I'm, it's all right for you. I live in Wigan. I'm going to get lynched the next time I leave the house. <laughs> I, I, Richard Ashcroft's family will just be chasing after me going, you leave our Richard alone. Little dicky. Well, I can... Um, <laughs> is that what they're calling you? Um, yeah, well, I'll, <laughs> I'll just flash my Win- Winstonly credentials and they'll say, oh, no, you're a peer. Like, yes, I am. You'll flash your what? C- credentials. Let's <laughs> hope the police aren't around. Um, yeah, I... If you can't guess, I've got very little to say about this one as well. I don't, I don't, apart from I don't like it. I don't either. I absolutely nothing this song. It it does less than nothing for me. And it could definitely have been cut. Having said that, the last one minute 30 are all right. <laughs> well, that's it. That's all I've got to say. It's... Well, yeah. come on then, Tyler. That's the last song. <laughs> all right, track. Lucky number 13, uh, come on, at an astounding 15 minutes and 15 seconds. Well, that's including the hidden song Deep Freeze. Yeah, we'll get to Deep Freeze. Um, uh, the first thing I've put is, I am fatigued. Yeah, I put felt like uh, an uphill climb after the last two songs. Yeah, uh, I think if I'd started drinking at track one, then I'd be in the mood for this song. Because it, it does have a lot of energy to yeah. it once it gets going, um, but I, you know I'm gonna I'm gonna have to listen to a lot of this this album uh, in in isolation and just uh, just pick out a track to listen to because I, I feel like I'm not quite getting as much as I could possibly get out of the last few tracks. We've not spent that long um, with this album, certainly not as long as we we probably should have done. But I I just think on 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 an impulse, if you kicked off track one day and then you've got this time being track number 10 and then you go straight into just come on as the last song 11 out 11 um songs then it's doable and i think you don't this this is a great it's definitely the the last song on the album you know it's it's and not just because it's been placed there it's, it feels like a closing song there is loads of energy come on feels like it's an oasis vibe uh liam gallagher does feature on this one and it's a there's a there's screaming, there's shouting, there's a bit where um I did I, I did notice his hands clapping. Yeah, well, I mean those distinctive hands, very distinctive palms. Yeah, um, and it, and it and it has that exuberance of him shouting and even swearing. I think there's an f u in there. Um, oh yeah, yeah. so naughty boy. I, I think it's good. It does feel like they're letting loose, which is great. I, I just but it's hard to feel that. After this long, you know, it's it's a okay, fine. You're doing that, but I'm I've sort of I, I want to go to bed now. Yeah. Um. Well, you've got to wait around a bit because after six minutes of track, you've got seven minutes of silence. Which do you remember, like, it, it, when you were a teenager and you'd you'd bring an album home and you'd li- you know you'd put it on, you'd listen to it, and then you you wouldn't stop any you wouldn't press stop because you didn't need to the track the, the cd would just stop yeah. well i the, the, the hidden track got me like it, it it had been seven minutes since the album to to my knowledge finished and then i was just sat in my living room and this noise started and i was like what is that noise so i'm looking out the windows and i'm like where's this noise what's happening i couldn't figure it out and then i realized it's this hidden track 
which is just a lot of bleeps and bloops and a crying baby. It doesn't really go anywhere. Yeah, caterwauling I've put. It it doesn't do anything for for me or you or the Verve, <laughs> and it's just it's just rubbish. It's like R two D two popped into the state the the studio for the last ten minutes or something. Well, dragging this back, kicking and screaming to U two. This um that same thing got me with Zeropa. I think I was over at Vinny's house and we were listening to Zeropa and we just let it play through and we were probably listening to we were probably playing SSX Tricky or Time Splitters or something on the PS2. And then suddenly there's that you know, those like the bleeps, the the like the, the alarm at the end. I think we genuinely thought the house was on fire. But um apart yeah. from doing that childish prank on a couple of teenagers who to be honest were just trying to play a bit of playstation i don't see why people would do this kind of thing it's so stupid yeah um it's funny with zero it, it would suit the album to like to spontaneously combust combust or or self-destruct yeah. at the end of it um and that would that would be the kind of marketing ploy that uh, you two would go for an album that you have to keep buying over Surely and over that again would have been better on the uh, mission impossible thing blowing that, up um, Adam and Larry did. Or what if How to Dismantle an Atomic Bomb was an actual... Atomic bomb. Uh, but not not at all that dangerous bomb. Uh, that you that you had the in the length of the album to... <laughs> what am I talking about? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not even bothering. If you can finish Tyler's <laughs> thought, please write in. If you knew what the hell he was on about and want to finish off what he was going to say, then please have a go. <laughs> Um, should, we, should we wrap up and do our sweetest things in 30 days Let, let's make like Christmas and wrap up it'll be Christmas by the time we finish this bloody thing um, right we'll go on what's your, what's, your, what's your sweetest thing Tyler bittersweetest uh, thing it's mm, kind of annoyed I didn't think of that really uh, the rolling people that was that was a big choice for me I was thinking about that but I think it's going to be Weeping Willow for me that's my favourite <laughs> old Ashcroft himself um, I mean take your pick of the of some of the last ones but I think it will be Velvet Morning I do not like any of the choices on that song and you could happily stick it in the bin well because I've, I've given the back for the album a pass because I, I feel like I need a little bit more time with it uh, but Neon Wilderness got it for me it's just a not it's just it's just meanders along, so, doesn't so, it? I mean, I don't want to lengthen this any longer, but to me, that's a nice little breather in the middle of, of a quite intense bit of the album and a lot of singles, whereas I think it's well-placed and it works for what it is, whereas the stuff on the end just makes it so long. But anyway, there we go. Um, it doesn't yeah. sound like it, but I actually really enjoyed this album. Yeah, I, I also did... Um, uh, yeah, yeah, I, I also did. It's... Um, very, it's a very successful album. Uh, the singles, I think, speak for themselves. Out of all of the Verve's output, I think this is the one that is really regarded as their absolute classic. And uh, for me, it really slots in well with the 90s music that we've been talking about. Although we've not covered Pulp, we've mentioned them a few times. Uh, Oasis, mm. obviously. Um, I, I mean. Um, Blur as well. We've probably not talked about Blur as much as we possibly could have done, but I'd see the Verve as one of the top five indie, or you know, Britpop bands. Um, I don't know how many other people would put them 
uh, that high. But uh, for me, certainly they're in the top five. I think less. I mean, we know that Oasis never really cracked America, but we got a lot of responses asking about you know international listeners for Oasis, and um, I think the Verve definitely didn't even go as far as as far as that. I think they are probably quite a domestic product. Um, and to anyone who who um, maybe has carried over from our U2 podcast who has never heard um, The Verve before, A, obviously check out this album because it's great. But I would say get the biggest sound system you can or crank your headphones up and stick Love Is Noise on and tell me you don't get shivers down your spine if you've never heard that song before because that is an absolute banger. Love Is Noise live at Glastonbury oh, yeah. is one of the most imp- impressive live performances i've ever seen by any band and and not to keep going on about spontaneous combustion but it it seems like that's the only thing that could possibly finish off that song it seems like that's where the the whole band are headed and um yeah i'd listen i listened to that actually just before we started recording absolutely love that track although i've never really listened to fourth so maybe I'll do that. It goes now. downhill quite swiftly after after that. It's not a bad album, but it's but it, that that song makes a promise that the rest of the album does not um, cash. Um, right. So next time round, we're going to be doing uh, one of mine and Johnny's favorite bands. They're a band called Mew. That's M E W, and the album is called And the Glass Handed Kites. I am aware that Mew aren't the most famous band on the planet, but bear with us. I go away and listen to that album. We're gonna, you know what we're like. We could be a month or two before we get the actual episode recorded and out. We'll try and do it quicker. But go away, listen to Mew, see what you think. Um, if if you agree with what me and Johnny say on a regular basis, then I, I really, really do think there might be a lot in there for you. Yeah. Uh, and and you'll know what we're actually talking about next time round. But that that's my personal recommendation. We it's going to be a gusher next time yeah and bear with the start of the album because you might think we were promising melody and sweet guitars and beautiful falsetto voices and then you hear the the start of that and think what where's all that bear with it stick with it it's fantastic once your ear gets attuned you uh, if you don't love it i'd be really surprised um so there you go that's what we're doing next time uh from myself tyler and from the guy over there Johnny yay Uh, thank you very much for listening and we'll see you next time see you soon Thank you for listening to Review 2, the U2 podcast. If you'd like to get in contact or for more information, please follow us on Twitter at REV underscore U2 or on Facebook.com forward slash REV U2 For those rebel type guys, why not email us at review2contact at gmail.com. Review 2 was presented by Johnny and Tyler. <laughs>